Amen. How are y'all this morning? Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 2. My assignment this morning is just to go through verses 1 through 7. I think that'll work to your favor. <laughs> Beginning in verse number 1, it says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Verse number four, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Good morning, my name is Andrew Storms. I have a wonderful privilege to speak to you this morning in late December. Uh, my family and I are here today, so I just want to uh, point them out. My wife and I have been married for over nine years. We have attended Antioch for seven of those years since we moved to College Station in 2010. We have jumped on board, showed up with no kids. Now we have four amazing children. We are so blessed. We have Drew, who is six. We have Gracie, who is four. Grant is two, and then our newest addition, Lincoln, is 11 weeks old, and he's just amazing. My wife's amazing. Life is great. We are so blessed and so honored to be a part of this fellowship. I came on in last April. I'm now one of the elders at church. I just give you that for context. It's been a blessing to serve and to be kind of behind closed doors and see just the heart and the purity and the integrity that Tyler and Chris and Mitchell and Kayla and these guys walk with, so I feel blessed and honored to be a part of all of that. For those of you that are visitors here today, I just want to say welcome to you, and we are just so glad that you're here to celebrate with us this Christmas season, what is going on as we celebrate the one true God, Jesus Christ. This season is 100% all about him, and the older I get, the more I realize that, way more. Amen. I got to share something. This was so awesome, just how God is moving in our lives, not even mine specifically, but just in this church. I get a phone call on Thursday afternoon. I'm at work. I'm cleaning up. I'm a teacher at a local school, and I get a phone call. I don't recognize it, so I quickly answer it just on a whim. They're like, hey, is this Andrew? I said, yes. This guy told me his name, who he was, and he said, would you be willing tomorrow, I know this is quick, but would you be willing tomorrow to go speak to such and such high school football team? It's going to their big team meeting, and they're getting ready to play a big playoff game, and they just need a speaker. It's for you. I mean, you'll have the players, the coaches, parents. Would you come? And I said, well, what do you want me to talk about? And he said, well, you know, just something kind of motivational. And I said, I'm not, I'm not real good at that. I was like, but I knew this guy was a Christian, so I said, are you allowed to use Scripture? And he said, well, I did last week, so yeah, it's just whatever you want. And so I show up, and I'm speaking with the people beforehand, and they said, yeah, we'll just kind of come up and reiterate some things that you're going to talk about. And I said, I, I don't think you have any idea what I'm about to talk about. <laughs> and so I get up there, and he said, well, I'm not going to ask, because then if you say something you're not supposed to, so we're at a public school, and guys, for 20 minutes, I got to unload the gospel of Jesus Christ on these kids. It was nuts. They were listening, they were attentive, and I just prayed that a seed was sowed, and I walked off just in straight boldness, and it was the Holy Spirit was there, and he was speaking to them. I didn't tell, I don't know what to talk about motivation. My teams weren't very good when I coached. But I tell you what, I can make sure that you know the gospel and that he loves you. And I told him, no matter what mistakes you make in life, you have got to put your faith and the Lord Jesus Christ. What an opportunity in 24 hours that God would just place me 
in front of these people. They had NFL players come before me, politicians, all kinds of people. And here I am, just a vessel wanting to be used by God, explaining the gospel, the most important message that these guys have ever heard and will ever hear their entire lives. Amen? I was so encouraged by that. Well, I've always had this question, even recently it's, it's picked up a little bit more, about what's more important, Christmas or Easter? Because some people, you know, that's all they show up to church on. And we can see the difference is like one is where Jesus is birthed, and one is where the crucifixion, the death, the resurrection, all those things occur. And as I begin to dig into this passage a little deeper, I begin to find that inside of Christmas, we can actually find some hints, even some foreshadowing of the death and the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to unpack a little bit of that today. And if we look at Easter, we see that as we are crucified with Christ, as the Apostle Paul talks about, that we are also raised to newness of life. So inside of death, we also find a new birth. So it appears as though inside of Christmas, we can find some points from Easter and vice versa. So what I'm starting to discover is that really they are one and the same. Our time that we operate in, we see them as two different events, but I just wonder in eternity if perhaps God designed them as one and now the mystery of the whole thing begins to unravel as we begin to listen to the Holy Spirit and see that it's not that the birth is more important and it's not that the death, burial, and resurrection, but they're really all one and the same. So we're gonna look at that here in just a little bit. We're gonna walk verse by verse, beginning in verses one through three. We read about Caesar Augustus. He is the Roman emperor at the time and he is calling a census. He wants to count the people that are Roman citizens and those that are under his jurisdiction as well to, to get an account for what, how many people they are. So it says that people have to go back to their own towns. That's where they went to register, wherever they were from. So we find Joseph and Mary returning to Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem. And so when we look at a census, it says that it's the first one taken in quite a while back then. Us here in America, we take a census, I believe, once every 10 years. Now, the purpose that we have a census is really for two primary purposes here in America. The first one is we want to count the numbers, the people, the population, so that there is proper representation inside of the government. That's where we get our House of Representatives, the Senate. So in theory, the smaller your town is, the less representation you have, the larger, the greater representation as well, which should make sense to us. Along with that, with the funds that we pay off of taxes and things, is they want to make sure that we allocate the funds and the services or goods to the right people. You don't want to overwhelm a small town with millions of dollars, then they all become rich, and then you forget about the big city and just put a little bit. So there's a definite purpose for that. But we find in the time that's written that Luke, the writer of this gospel, the census that was taken then was, yes, so that people could be accounted for, but at the same time, it was primarily taken for taxation. So whatever that you own, whether your houses or your lands, Caesar Augustus wanted you to pay a tax off of that. So he wanted two things. He wanted you to account for who you were, and he wanted you to pay a price. That sounds eerily familiar as we begin to walk through the gospel because I read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 13, it says that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So if we skip over the census as meaningless, we miss the parallel that we also are called to give an account. It also says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says that the wages of sin is death. 
So not only are we called to be accounted for in our lives, the day we breathe our last breath and we stand before God, the great judge, we also understand that there is a price to be paid because the wages of sin is death. So Joseph, Mary, the people in that time, they have to give an account for who they are. They have to pay the fees. They have to pay the price. Us, we have to give an account for who we are and we have to pay a price as well. But we have something available to us. Listen to what it says, Romans chapter five, verses six through eight. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what I find fascinating is that anytime there's a price to be paid, anytime there is a debt to be owed, that's when Jesus shows up. I wonder if in heaven he was itching when he heard that Caesar Augustus had proclaimed the census that he wanted people to be counted and he wanted a price to be paid. I just wonder if there was a dialogue between the father and the son. He said, I'm supposed to go now because that's what I was created for was when somebody has to give an account and somebody has to pay the price. Father, can I go? It's my time. That's what I'm called to do. And we see the parallel between the census taken and the census in our lives. And the solution to both is always the same. It is always the Lord Jesus Christ. Continuing on in verse number four, it says, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. If we read over this too quickly, we miss the whole point of this specific verse. Now we are inside of a four-week series titled The Promise of Christmas. What verse four is, the people that read this initially, they understood that Luke, the writer here, is showing who Jesus actually is, that he is fitting the prophecies that have been spoken about him, where he would come from, and whose lineage he had belonged to. Look what Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says. It's speaking about Bethlehem. It says, but as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. There's only one being I know about that's been around since eternity, and it's Jesus. And Luke is saying that right here. He fits the bill. This guy is heading to Bethlehem. It says, from Bethlehem will come one whose beginnings were from the beginning of all the days of eternity. To show that he is in the lineage of David, we find a scripture in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse number 12. It's the prophet Nathan, and he is speaking to David before David passes away from the earth. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There built into Luke chapter two, verse four is the promise of a savior. It shows that he is who he said that he is. Simply put, the birth of Jesus is not a story. It is a fulfillment of a promise from a loving God to his people. He is not a God of coincidence, as some would suggest. It wasn't a coincidence that they happened to call me the other day and ask me to speak. We don't believe in coincidence. We believe in a divine God that sets things in order the way that he wants to set them. And if we're willing to
to walk according to his pattern. He will use us more than we've ever even imagined. Beginning in verse number five of Luke two, told you it's going to be a quick day. There's only seven verses. It says he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. We've talked about in the last couple weeks of Mary and how the angel Gabriel came and spoke to her and told her that she was going to be with a child that would become and is the son of the Most High God. Yes, Mary was highly favored, and yes, she was chosen to carry him. She is blessed. She was chosen from among women. But I want to tell you something today. She was never meant to be worshipped. And what we and religious circles do is we begin to take things that are variables, things that God has picked, that God has blessed, and that God has chosen, and we try to give them the title of a constant. There's a huge difference between a constant and a variable. How many of you know there's only one constant in this world? Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If that's not a statement of consistency, I'm not sure what is. We as human beings, the creative God that designed us, we are the variables. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 4, 7 it says, but we have this treasure, speaking about Jesus, we have this treasure in jars of clay, that's us, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The power always lies with the constant. It never lies with the variable. If we're talking about mathematics, we know that a constant is unchanging, it's unwavering. Take the number seven, for instance, we know it's value, it's steadfast, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you look at a variable, that's you and I, in mathematics, take like the letter X. It has a value, but its value is unknown. Nobody knows. If you start throwing too many variables together, X's, P's, Q's, mathematicians say, I can't deal with that. You have to give me a constant. It's not something that you can just add to your life and say, well, I'm little X over here and I think Jesus is good, I just wanna add him in. It's a beautiful picture that when you take a constant, you take a seven, you take an X, when you put them together and they are joined, we know in math that that means multiplication. If you want to see some things take off in your life, you can't just simply add them to it. It doesn't work. You're going to stay the same, and he's going to stay the same. But the minute you attach yourself to that constant, the one true God, Jesus Christ, your life will begin to explode, and you'll do things that you never thought you can do, you're going to find yourself in front of a football team on a Friday night with no plan of sharing the gospel and pouring out the truth of who Jesus is to people that are around you. That's what it means to lock into a constant. It's never about us. Amen? Amen. It's never about us. Now, we are a variable, and I'm not saying that we don't have value, but the minute we try to look to somebody else to be the solution to our problem, not understanding that is the Jesus inside of them. We have slipped into the slope of worshiping Mary. That's essentially what we do in our lives and in our religion. May we never do that. Continuing on in that verse at the very end of it, it says that Mary is expecting a child. And as I read that, I wondered how many of us still treat Jesus like a child. <coughs> I have my beautiful 11-week-old son, Lincoln, and when I hold him, it's precious to me. I love him. He's amazing. But if I want to get a reaction out of him, I have to over-exaggerate my senses. 
I have to talk with a different voice. I have to put on my best face for him just to get a reaction out of him. How many of us do that with Jesus? We think we have to put our best foot forward. We have to talk the talk when people are watching, and we have to you know, say things in a different way, but it's not really who we are. If I walked around and talked to you like I talked to Lincoln, you'd think I was crazy. <laughs> but do we not do that in church circles? We put our best foot forward and we smile, and we think we have to perform just to get Jesus to react to us. The older I get, I realize that he doesn't want the best of me. He wants my worst. That's what he's after. I've heard it said before that God is not after your public life. And you know what? He's not even after your private life. He's after your secret life. That's what he wants. He wants to know what's really going on inside of you. As Mitchell brought that word up today about him coming into your mess and him coming into your filth, man, that resonated with me. Like, that's what I want for my life. We have a beautiful church here that when you dive into life groups, we're all messy people, but we begin to expose ourselves for who we are, and there's the privacy begins to fade away, and we find that there's freedom and that there's healing inside of that. But I think too often we don't see Jesus as the Son and the Savior. We just see him as a child that we want to entertain, and he's fun to have every once in a while. And sometimes we feel like we have to clean up his mess because we see him as a child. Somebody says, well, what do you think about this issue? Well, I don't really want to get into that. If we saw him as the son, we would know that his word is true, and we just show the scripture, and it's done. It's that simple. How many of us still see him as a child? But look at this. Mary is expecting a child, but I want to show you what she gets. In verse number six of Luke chapter two, it says, while they were there, meaning in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. So she's expecting a child, and she knew he was male. She knew that from Gabriel telling her that. But she's expecting a child, but she gets a son. But what's so significant? What's the difference? Like, why, why am I pointing that out? Listen to what Isaiah 9, 6 says. We just sang about it earlier. It says, for to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Have we ever read that and just perceived it as repetitive? But actually it's not. There it is, built into that one verse is the message of Christmas and the message of Easter. For unto us a child is born, but a son is one who is given. What does it say in John 3.16? We all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only what? Son. That whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. As Jesus was there in his ministry in the early days at the very beginning, He's baptized there in the Jordan River, and the father speaks down. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. If you want to know how to operate as a son, the Bible tells us, it says, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. We find inside of our Savior a sonship. So what's the difference still? If you think about a child, a child inside of a father's house, he has access to everything. The Father has given him all the benefits of being in a family. You and I can choose to walk as children of God, and we have all the benefits. We have full access to the Father. That'll never change. But a son, when given by the Father at the right time, a son has all authority. And that's what Jesus came to do. He came born as a child, but he came to be given as a son. As we look at that verse 7 again, I just want to point something out. It says that, after she gives birth to him, it says that she wrapped him 
and cloths, and she placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. That caught me off guard. And I'll tell you why. I have never in my life seen, especially from my wonderful, beautiful wife, I have never seen a child be born and the mother wrap them up and set them down. Never seen it. What does a mother want to do when that child is first born? She wants to hold it. She wants to take that baby and she wants to nurture it. She wants to hold on and she wants to keep it warm and possibly nurse the baby right there on the spot, bring, her, bring the baby to the, the chest, to body, to get the warmth, wants to talk to it. There's not a whole lot of mamas in here going to let you hold their baby the first you know, night they're born. That ain't happening. Even if you're the dad, you be... tread lightly, tread lightly. <laughs> so why would she set them down? What would make Mary the variable? What would make her want to set the child down? It just doesn't seem right. We talked about historians are at odds. Some people think, well, she was actually inside of a house. It just wasn't the right room. Some people say, well, she's out in a barn, out in a stable. We don't really know. But again, that's when we start focusing on the variable. Who cares? We know that the constant is here and he has been born. That's what I want to focus on. But why would she set him down? And the best I could surmise is really two things. First off, if you look at a manger, you and I picture it as this nice wooden box with straw and hay and it's comfortable and all these things. But as I began to research it, we find that there were times where the, the, the manger was made out of clay, but they said the most often mangers that were formed was when you took a rock or you took a stone and it was simply just dug out right there. We know that it's a feeding trough, a watering place for the animals for sure. But as we think about it just a little bit, we find Jesus, the baby, the child, the son, wrapped in cloths placed inside of an empty stone. Doesn't that sound familiar to the story of Easter? That we find him, after dying a brutal, horrific death on a cross for you and I to pay for every sin, everything wrong that we've ever done, don't we find his body wrapped up? And isn't it placed inside of an empty stone? So perhaps Mary, without even realizing it, maybe prompted by the Holy Spirit, maybe the mystery of it all that she is signifying what will happen to him in his last days, that he would die a death. But notice, like I said before, we don't worship the child for too long. We don't keep him that way. We don't worship him for staying inside of a, the tomb. We don't worship him for staying inside of the manger. He is a risen Savior who is alive and he's well. You don't ever find the disciples going back and saying, I remember this place right here in Bethlehem. That's where it all started. They don't go back to where the cross was. They don't go back to the tomb. That's because they don't care. They understand the value of the constant. He is alive and he's living and he has come to give all of us life. The second reason I believe that she set him down was not only to signify his death, but she had to actually share him. We'll find out next week as Tyler wraps up the series that you know the story pretty well that the angels visit the shepherds and they say, Come find this child. You'll find him wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. What if she had never set him down? They would have walked right past him and never known who he was. They'd say, that's not him. He's not laying in a manger. How many times have we held him too close and we haven't given him, we haven't set him down to share with everybody else that is around us? I hear people say, well, my religion, my choice, my relationship with God is private. That's trash. It's not. It doesn't work like that. You have to set him down. You have to let other people see him. Now, is he private with you? 
Is he intimate with you? Absolutely, 100%. There are times for that. If we look at the, the parallel of marriage, my wife and I are intimate. Nobody gets to know those details, but I'll tell you what, everybody knows I'm married to her. So when he is intimate with us, you may not know all that, but they better know that you're following him. They better know that what you live in your life is according to the way that God has designed it for you. Don't hold him. What a great season to set him down. What a great season. Christmas, it's so simple. People are dying. They're, they're getting all this stuff inundated with, with presents and all these things. They just want to know what the truth is. And I just want to be able to give that to him. I want to share what he has given been given to us and what we can give back to him. And lastly, it says that there was no room for him in the inn. How many of you know that Jesus will not abide in some place that is already occupied? I believe that that is what happened is signifying and showing that if you're not willing, if you're not ready, then I'm not going to come to that spot. But all we have to do is empty ourselves, just like that manger was carved out. There was a place for him, a place for the Savior to come and lay his head. If you would, go ahead and stand with me today. Band, if you'll make your way back up here. If you're one of our life group leaders or prayer partners, I'm going to ask that you go ahead and come down to the front. You know, I mentioned it briefly just a little bit before that I realized that the older I'd get, what's, what's so important about Christmas? You know, I, I remember as a kid growing up in the church and thinking, why in Christmas do we always talk about the birth of Jesus? Like, aren't we just wasting a few different weeks? Because, I mean, shouldn't we be talking about something else? Shouldn't we be going deeper into the Bible? It just kind of irked me. But the more that I've understood what's really going on in this story, and the more I realize that there's too many variables and I just want to focus on a constant, I realize that the value of this season is so tremendous. And even greater, I think, besides not understanding his birth, I think there's things we'll learn about as we walk down this road in our Christianity, but even more so, I don't think we understand the impact or the significance of his death and his resurrection. I think that's why Paul, the apostle, said, I resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. He understood that. This apostle, this great man on the earth, he said, I just want to go back to the beginning. I just want to focus on who he is and what he's done for me. Forget all the variables for a moment. I want to focus on the constant. So recapping, I just want to pull some things out. I just want to ask, have you allowed Jesus to pay the ultimate price for your sin? We talked about that. At some point, you're going to be accountable for everything you've done. You're going to stand before God and he's going to ask you, what have you done with your life? And if you can turn to him and say, I've received your son, Jesus, that he paid the penalty. He died a death for me. The Bible says that all you have to do is confess with your mouth that he is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you're saved. That's it. It's that simple. Now, it cost you your whole life, but it cost him his too. It's a fair exchange. It's not even close when it comes to the benefits that we get. You know, I like to say it this way. In this season, he has given us a great gift we in modern America, we place our gifts under the tree, but God placed his gift on a tree. He came and he died that death on the cross for you and for me. I want to ask you, is he the one true constant in your life? Have you gotten away from that? Have you locked in on the variables and you're wondering why things are going crazy and why you're bickering with your roommates? 
or why your marriage is in shambles because you're sitting there and you're focusing on the wrong thing. He said, come back to the constant. The constant is me. Perhaps today you're still treating him as a child. You don't see the significance of who he really is. Some of these are just a simple repentance. It's just, God, I, I see the, area of my, the error of my way and now I repent. But I think the most important here, especially for myself and for just us, we get caught up in the season, what's going on, is have you emptied yourself? You know, it's okay if your surroundings like Mary and Joseph had there, it's okay if they're not majestic. It's okay if you're messy, if it's just a meager place of existence. He doesn't care. He just wants you to be empty so that he has somewhere to stay. If that's you in any one of those aspects today and you just want to come and just pray, there's people down here, there's salvation that's offered. It doesn't have to, you don't have to wait. You just come and you give your life to Jesus and he begins to take control and you begin to turn it over to him. Amazing things begin to happen. Maybe you need to just come rededicate and say, you're the one true constant. Forgive me, Lord, for that, not seeing that or for viewing you as only a child. I want to see you as the son. Or maybe you just want to come empty yourself or maybe you do it there at your chair. I don't really care. I just want you to know that there's people down here that love you. The opportunity is here. If you want prayer, please come forward in these next few moments. Amen.